You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Scams and Cons. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool. Find her on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. My name is Ashley Noble, and I'll be your host this evening. With me today, I have Jem Newman. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Lauren Bailey. Hi. And we are going to return to the ever-present well of beautiful stories, scams, and cons. There are so many delightful stories out there from the recent past, the very, very recent past, and the very distant past. I am looking forward to hearing about all of these ridiculous schemes, some of which have been kept quite mysterious from me. We're going to start with Jem because he was the most mysterious. So today I would like to tell you all about Paolo Macchiarini. Dr. Macchiarini is a Swiss-Italian thoracic surgeon and pioneer in the field of regenerative medicine. Macchiarini was born in Switzerland to parents of Italian heritage, and he received his medical degree from the prestigious University of Pisa, one of Europe's oldest schools, where he went on to teach later in his life. The surgeon went on to further training from institutions in France and the United States. In the early 2010s, Macchiarini rose to fame for a series of radical, life-saving surgeries. Under Macchiarini's care, patients with damaged or obstructed airways, whether due to diseases such as tuberculosis or cancer, or to congenital malformations of their airway, had their windpipes completely replaced. The good doctor took tracheas and bronchi from cadavers and stripped them chemically, leaving only the cartilaginous scaffolding behind. He then seeded this scaffold with stem cells taken from the patient's own bone marrow, then transplanted this new trachea back into the patient, replacing their defective airway. I have totally like heard about and talked about this as a super cool thing, and I'm afraid that I'm about to be devastated. <laughs> as some listeners may be aware, organ transplantation runs the risk of rejection which occurs when the recipient's body recognizes the donated organ as foreign and attempts to destroy it with a massive immune response. Where are we, the ass? We're in the heart, better known as the love muscle. For this reason, patients who receive organ transplants require lifelong immunosuppression, which prevents their body from mounting a potentially lethal immune response to the transplanted organ at the cost of leaving the recipient vulnerable to infection and malignancy. Macchiarini's procedure promised to neatly sidestep this drawback entirely by removing the donor's cells, leaving only the cartilaginous tracheal scaffolding, and replacing all of these cells with cells from the patient's own body. 
This, the doctor supposed, would result in minimal chance of rejection and no need to suppress the patient's immune system. The first such procedure was performed by Dr. Paolo Macchiarini in Barcelona in 2008. The patient was Claudia Castillo, a 30-year-old woman whose left bronchus was severely damaged by tuberculosis. Later refinements to the procedure did away with the need for cadaveric specimens entirely, and in future cases, stem cells were seeded onto an artificial plastic scaffold trachea instead. Colleagues and fellow researchers described Macchiarini's patients' recoveries as nothing short of miraculous. Macchiarini himself called the procedure a major achievement in the history of medicine, and journalists praised him for heralding the dawn of the stem cell revolution. Soon, Macchiarini had ascended to a level of medical fame usually reserved only for guests of Oprah. This fame, Ouch. along with some... I was just like, oop, there's the red flag. This fame, along with some carefully cultivated friendships that he developed along the way, led to Macchiarini's appointment as a visiting professor at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, the institution that is responsible for awarding the annual Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. Macchiarini was also given a part-time surgical post at the university hospital. In 2014, Macchiarini was the subject of an NBC Dateline special called A Leap of Faith. The main creative forces behind A Leap of Faith were broadcast journalists Meredith Vieira and Benita Alexander, an award-winning producer for NBC News. The documentary went on to be nominated for an Emmy in 2015, though it eventually lost to 60 Minutes. So where's the con? Benita Alexander first met Paolo Macchiarini in February 2013 while preparing for filming A Leap of Faith. During a long discussion at the Mandarin Hotel, Alexander confided in him about her marital problems. He offered sage advice, and she later described him as a pillar of strength. As work on the documentary TV special continued, the two spent more and more time together, with work meetings slowly blending into quiet dinners. By June, Dr. Macchiarini was flying Alexander to Venice, where the two shared a gondola and attached love lockets to Pont dell'Accademia Bridge. In July, Alexander visited Macchiarini in Stockholm. In October, it was London. Macchiarini proposed to Alexander in December of 2013, months before the documentary would air. He told her that his divorce had finally gone through. Elated, Alexander said yes. While Alexander is Episcopalian, that's Anglican for our fellow Canadians, Macchiarini is Catholic, and the couple decided that they would prefer to be married in the Catholic Church. These plans were complicated, of course, not only by the fact that Alexander is not Catholic, but by the fact that both were divorced. Macchiarini insisted that this was a problem that could be solved with a simple visit to his good friend, Pope Francis, who was known to be very progressive by church standards. Macchiarini was certain that he could persuade the pontiff. He was, after all, the Pope's personal physician. Macchiarini's fame appeared to have given him access to a broad array of famous patients. Consequently, during their courtship, Alexander and the good doctor spent a fair amount of time apart. While some might have seen his frequent absences as suspicious, Alexander was aware that Macchiarini was part of an elite corps of doctors who were on call for the surgical and medical needs of the elite. Macchiarini eventually confided that his clients included the Obamas, the Clintons, 
and Emperor Akihito of Japan. By October of the following year, Macchiarini told his fiancée that he had spoken to the Pope and the Pope had consented to their marriage. The pontiff proffered his personal blessing to the couple's marriage, offering not only to host the wedding at his summer residence at the Apostolic Palace at Castel Gandolfo, but also to officiate the ceremony himself. As the wedding approached, Alexander decided to come clean to her superiors at NBC that she was romantically involved with the subject of her reporting. Alexander tells reporters that her superiors were taken aback, given the ethical breach that this entailed, but they were ultimately supportive. At the very least, they did not retract the piece of reporting or refrain from submitting it for any consideration. NBC higher-ups, however, dispute this, claiming that at the time they didn't know that she'd been involved with Dr. Macchiarini during the course of reporting, but believed that the couple had gotten together after the piece had wrapped. In any event, wedding planning proceeded apace, with a guest list that had grown to include the Obamas, the Clintons, Nicolas Sarkozy, and Vladimir Putin. Andrea Bocelli was set to sing at the service. As her friends and family bought plane tickets to attend the wedding in Italy, Alexander prepared to move herself and her daughter to Europe to live with her new spouse. She pulled her daughter from school and submitted her resignation to NBC. Oh. What, say, don't tell me there's something about the story that isn't hanging together. The day after submitting her resignation, Alexander received an email from a friend with the subject line, The Pope. The email contained a link to a news article about Pope Francis' upcoming visit to South America, a visit that happened to coincide with the date that he was meant to be officiating Alexander's wedding to Dr. Macchiarini. Macchiarini explained that there must have been a scheduling mix-up, and that he would personally go to the Vatican to sort it out. He later reassured Alexander that the Pope would return early from his South American trip to officiate. This was... Of course. What? A lie. What? Well, I am shocked and dismayed. Well, now you can't be both. You be shocked, I'll be dismayed. When Alexander hired a private detective to look into Macchiarini, she discovered that he was still married to his wife of 30 years, with whom he lived in Barcelona. Of course. Officials at the Holy See appeared indignant at the suggestion that the Pope might have performed the wedding. <laughs> when reporters for Vanity Fair reached out to the Vatican for comment, Federico Lombardi, director of the press office, scoffed, saying, There is no personal doctor of the Pope with the name Macchiarini. The Pope has surely never promised to officiate a wedding of Macchiarini and does not know someone with such a name. On 11th July, the Pope was traveling in Latin America, and this was on his agenda long time before July. This is enough. Andrea Bocelli's manager, who is also his wife, was similarly amused by the suggestion that he might sing at the erstwhile couple's wedding. He was not booked to sing at a wedding. He doesn't sing at people's weddings. Castel Gondolfo? Absolutely not. Now, as you might at this point suspect, Macchiarini is not some simple Tinder swindler. And his cons run deeper than just the romantic. By 2017... Of the eight patients who had received synthetic tracheas from Dr. Macchiarini, seven were dead. Macchiarini has been accused by his colleagues of downplaying the risks of the procedure when discussing it with patients and the press, and of failing to obtain proper consent or even ethical approval for his experimental surgeries. Oh my god. 
When asked for his opinion on whether Dr. Macchiarini's procedures might be appropriate for those suffering from a terminal condition, Dr. Pierre Delare, professor of respiratory surgery at KU Leuven in Belgium, replied, quote, If I had the option of a synthetic trachea or a firing squad, I'd choose the last option, because it would be the least painful form of execution. A 2016 Vanity Fair investigation also revealed that, like his social life, much of Dr. Macchiarini's resume was greatly embellished or outright fabricated. Macchiarini claimed to have received his medical degree from the University of Pisa, and subsequently he had a fellowship in thoracic surgery at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, though a different CV claimed that it was actually a master's degree from Birmingham in biostatistics. He also had a master's of science and a PhD in organ and tissue transplantation from Besançon in France, though, again, a different resume said his PhD was actually in life and health sciences, but no matter. This is sounding very familiar to the things that I have read today. <laughs> Dr. Macchiarini followed these scholarly pursuits up with full professorships, which is the European equivalent of a tenured professorship, at the University of Paris Sud and at Hanover Medical School. When contacted by Vanity Fair, Pisa did confirm that he had attended medical school there, where he specialized in surgery. So far, so good. But the University of Alabama denied that they had ever issued him a master's degree, or that he'd completed a fellowship of any sort, let alone in thoracic surgery. They eventually found a record of him briefly studying hematology-oncology there, but for a period that was a mere 30 months short of what would be necessary to qualify for a clinical fellowship. 30 months? That's a lot. 30 months short, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fellowships, two you know. Two plus two and a half years? That's a can, little... They, they can be long. It depends on the, on the specialty, on the teaching hospital or school. But... Oh, okay. How long do you think a fellowship, like what's a reasonable amount of months? Well, I, like I know that at the University of Manitoba, for example, if you're going into like spinal surgery, it's a two-year fellowship on top of your five to six-year residency on top of your medical school, on top of your undergraduate degree. so. But didn't, didn't you say that he was 30 months short of finishing his fellowship, which would be two and a half yeah. years? 30, so 30 months short of the amount of time that would be required for a fellowship. But it, it, it is not clear whether he was actually ever oh. like, accepted into a fellowship program. So gotcha. he, he just like did a little, he dabbled in hematology while there, but he did not have a fellowship of any sort. And the amount of time that he was there was not remotely sufficient for a fellowship. Okay, I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying now. Thank you. Yeah. He dabbled in hematology like I do when I staunch a nosebleed, seriously. <laughs> not very much time at all. Hematologists would point out that a nosebleed is really more an ENT surgery, but, you know, is... Only when you I say tomato. It. I say, yeah. Okay. The University of Paris never got back to Vanity Fair, didn't reply to their inquiries, but Hanover did, and denied that he had ever been a full or even as an, an associate professor, though he was, for a time, a lowly adjunct. And his resume wasn't the only thing that he'd falsified. In February of 2016, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences expressed concern about a 2011 paper published in The Lancet by the good doctor, alleging that it had misrepresented the health of a patient who received one of Macchiarini's transplants. The patient, who was apparently in fairly good health prior to the procedure, experienced severe complications that eventually proved fatal. 
In October of 2017, Sweden's expert group on scientific misconduct requested retraction of six of Macchiarini's papers, announcing that it had uncovered evidence of fraud by Macchiarini and his co-authors. In June of 2018, an investigation by the Karolinska Institute found that Macchiarini and six other researchers were guilty of misconduct, and the Institute recommended retracting a total of six of their papers. This led to many of the higher-ups at the Karolinska Institute. This led them to step down, as they had been staunch defenders of Macchiarini for years. The Center for Scientific Integrity's Retraction Watch database has an extensive article on Paolo Macchiarini. As of this recording, Macchiarini has had eight of his research papers retracted, two have had corrections issued, and two have received official expressions of concern. As I alluded to a moment ago, in 2013, the prestigious Karolinska Institute terminated its clinical relationship with Macchiarini, though he was allowed to remain on staff as a researcher. Reports of scientific and ethical misconduct continued to mount, however, and Macchiarini was dismissed in 2016. He went on to work at Russia's Kazan Federal University, though his project was terminated the following year. In 2016, Swedish police opened an investigation into Macchiarini's experiments, with the aim of charging him with involuntary manslaughter for the deaths of several patients on whom he'd operated in Sweden. The case was eventually dropped by the prosecutor's office. The public prosecutor could not prove criminal responsibility because these patients were in poor health, and they may still have died of their illnesses even if Macchiarini had not operated on them. Despite this, the Attorney General's office maintained that Macchiarini's use of procedures and devices that were not supported by evidence constituted negligence. In 2019, an Italian court found Macchiarini guilty of abuse of office and forging documents, and the doctor was sentenced to 16 months in prison. The following year, the Swedish public prosecutor reopened the case against Macchiarini on the grounds that they had new evidence and testimony from patients in several European countries. Macchiarini was charged with aggravated assault on the grounds that he had caused, quote, serious physical injuries and great suffering in performing his surgeries. In 2022, just last year, a Swedish court convicted Macchiarini of causing bodily harm to a patient who was not critically ill, and the doctor received a suspended sentence and two years probation. And that, at least thus far, is the story of Dr. Paolo Macchiarini. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Wow. That's really unfortunate, because I always, I liked thinking about those cool tracheas that just out there doing their thing, not killing people. <laughs> Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Damn it. Damn it, Jim. They're not just out there traking along. So, Laura, was this the doctor that you were thinking of? I wasn't thinking of anyone in particular, I, but it was not the, the cons that I thought. I thought there was going to be some kind of elaborate insurance scam or something like that. Oh, ma it. many doctors are guilty of that. Yes, I know, but I thought there would be like something particularly funny or, or strange about it, but but then oh, as no. soon as it became Just clear, grim. yeah, as soon as it became clear that he was stringing Alexander. Alexander along, then my question was, how many others is he doing this to? And it reminded me the, of the episode of Law and Order, where it was all about this one guy who had like 25 wives. He was an architect and he built the exact same house 
all around the country <laughs> with each wife. It was, and I believe that was no. based on like a true story, like a lot of Law and Order. From the straight from the head. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I was just like, oh, is there a whole pile? Like when he's away all the time, is he just like traveling to all of his different wives? It's like, yeah. I know the Pope. I'm like, no, 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 no way in hell you know the Pope. <laughs> pope. This, like, the Pope's personal. Of all the lies to tell, <laughs> the Pope, like, in, and the Pope's going to officiate my wedding. I know. Right? Like, the Pope doesn't officiate anybody's weddings. <laughs> they could have gotten Benedict. I mean, he was free then. <laughs> in one of the articles, that I've got in the show notes about this that I read in preparing for this segment. They talked to some experts on psychopathy and the like about like why, like how big is this con? Like who who would, is this guy, how, how does this guy stack up to some of the other con, con artists out there? And they asked like, is this worse than like Bernie Madoff? And <laughs> the expert that they were talking to laughed and said, well, Bernie Madoff was a pretty simple con artist with a pretty simple Ponzi scheme. He never claimed to be the chair of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> One of the articles had a sort of weird kind of chilling coda at the end. Talked about how Ms. Alexander had eventually gone to Barcelona. She'd never, as much as she had spent a lot of time with this doctor in the course of reporting and their courtship had extended for years and he'd flown out to see her and she'd flown out to see him. She'd never actually visited his home in Barcelona, but she had the address. And so at the end, she put on like a wig and went with some of her friends and they went up to his house and one of them rang the guard bell at the gate and he came out and, and recognized her friend who he'd met before. And they had this kind of awkward conversation and the surgeon just kind of like looked around and said, well, thanks. And his wife came out with their kids and this friend of Alexander's handed him a bottle of wine that they'd brought. And she said, well, I wish you all the best. And she went back to the car where Alexander was waiting and Alexander was watching him through the windshield. And he just kind of looked around, walked over to a garbage can, dumped the wine in and went back in his house. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is his wife still together, though? Like, I kind of wonder, like, does she know he's like this or... Who knows? <laughs> and ask the Pope. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jem, for that <laughs> fascinating track through. Sad news. Yeah, yeah, at first, at first you thought it was a medical con, but then it turned out to be a romantic con, but then it turned out to be a medical con. <laughs> Incredible the lies that they will tell and just keep building upon even in the face of total absurdity. Here I am like undercounting my stats and like, oh, did I was that enough work to actually count it on the official counter and this guy's just racking up degrees that he made up? Like, yeah, but people check your resume, Laura. Well, apparently people don't. So if I've learned anything from these people is the higher you aim, the less they look into your background. So seriously, mm -hmm. real. all the people out there, apparently what we all got to do is just put like PhDs in everything and no one will question us. 
like my anxiety level is sufficiently high that every once in a while when I'm talking about my degree and the fact that I have a specialization in artificial intelligence and my first degree, I think back and I'm like, do I really have like, can I really like I haven't been working in it for a long time. So maybe I can't really say that anymore. That's not really fair. But then I, I go back and look at my degree and I look at my official transcript on Aurora Uni University of Manitoba and I see, oh yeah, it does say that I specialized in artificial intelligence. It says I have that specialization. Okay, fine. I guess I can say it. It's just a like fact. I'm, I'm checking my own credentials. <laughs> you gotta have less anxiety is how you truly mediocre white man your way into anything. <laughs> I guess so. I'll have less. I just keep getting more. I wish I knew the answer to that. Yeah. I had said Lauren next, right? Yes. Why don't you regale us with a old-timey slash new-timey con? Everything old is new again. Jem had a jet setter. I have a hyper-local can-con story for us today. The Twisted Tale of the Crocus Investment Fund. <laughs> My personal memory of the Crocus implosion was fuzzy, as most of the bad stuff happened when I was in my mid-twenties, and frankly, I wasn't paying attention to financial news. I don't now either, really. But in spending a few hours today reading old and current articles and the receiver reports, it has given me way more rage than clarity. For a long while, the word Crocus was Manitoba shorthand for don't trust the government, don't trust the banks, and never invest locally, ever. So it went well. <laughs> I am getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the beginning and go through the timeline. In 1991, the Crocus Investment Fund is established with the adoption of Manitoba Employee Ownership Fund Corporation and Consequential Amendments Act in the 37th session of the Manitoba Parliament. I read the act today. Riveting. <laughs> the fund is named after the Prairie Crocus, which is the Manitoba provincial flower. The fund allows everyday people to invest in small and medium-sized companies that want to do business in Manitoba. Sounds great, right? We all contribute our little bit, and the province prospers. It's even RRSP eligible. Ooh. So in about, yeah. About 18 months later, so in January 1993, the fund starts selling shares to the public. The federal and provincial governments eventually each give 20% tax credits on investments in Crocus. So that's a 40% total. Advertisements went out showing that if you invested $1,000, you'd receive $400 in combined credits on your tax return. So you should invest as much as possible in Crocus. Crocus works by facilitating worker buyouts. This allows the fund to purchase shares in companies and sell them to a worker trust in exchange for a security interest, where the fund works like a mortgage for the companies it invests in. So it works the same way as your mortgage, it just takes it from a bunch of small lenders. In the first four years, Crocus raises... $50 million and invests in nine separate Manitoba businesses. In 1999, the Dewar NDP provincial government takes over from the Philman Conservative government and they hype the fund hard because it is worker-focused. It is the little people helping the little people in Manitoba, which is what the NDP was supposed to be all about. By 2001, Crocus has more than $200 million in investment assets from over 30,000 Manitoba investors. As well, in a first for employee ownership in North America, the Crocus Fund leads the development of a university-based management training program for employee-owned companies. Okay, here's where it gets weird. Because <laughs> this is Manitoba, we are not allowed to build nice things. 
I, I've heard oh, that. It's true yeah. story. We are allowed a little bit, but then we purposely destroy them for no good reason. <laughs> this is where my cynicism kicks in. So both the governments of Ontario and Manitoba, they create investment pacing requirements and put them into legislative amendments because there's similar funds in Ontario, like the Trillium Fund and things, also named after their provincial flower. So these pacing requirements said that labor-sponsored investment funds like Crocus, or any other fund that was people-led, basically, needed to invest 70% of money raised in any year into eligible businesses within 22 months. So the money has to keep going out of the fund and into investments. It makes sense. They don't get to hoard the money, and they have to invest in the province. However, Ontario legislation recognizes that the asset base for an investment needs to be net of any funds redeemed by shareholders, and it needs to exclude investment losses from the base calculation. So in plain English, people are going to pull their money out, and we should account for that. Also, not every investment is going to make money, and we need to account for that as well, right? These are known things. Okay. The Manitoba legislation does not recognize either of these basic premises effectively requiring the fund to invest money that it does not have. So the money has to be cycled into the Manitoba business economy within 22 months, but it doesn't have any sort of protections. That's right, folks. The Dewar government turned Crocus into a pyramid scheme by failing to pass sensible financial legislation. That's just, I don't know, this feels like such a Manitoba story. <laughs> like, yep. Just like you just... We try and we just can't. We just can't do it, guys. We got to we got to break it before it's built. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'm feeling this in my bones. Like I vote NDP. I voted for Dewar. I do so because it isn't a far, there isn't a further left alternative in the province with any chance in hell of getting enough seats to make any sort of effective change. But I was reading this oversight and I, I nearly lost it. That's when I called it an effing train wreck in our discord. <laughs> this timeline is an effing train wreck was when I came to the doer piece. So how do you assume that investments will only ever go up and you don't need a sensible safety net for it if that changes? Like, I'm sure there are realists in doer's cabinet. I'm sure people made sensible suggestions like, hey, nothing is too big to fail. And what if people want to pull out their investments to use for retirement? Someone had to be saying that, right? All right, let's get back to our timeline. In 2000, as these pieces of legislation are being passed and expanded, a government accountant named Jack Delglish, warns government officials, including the finance minister, who is the future premier Greg Selinger, that Crocus is heading for a death spiral. According to a CBC article, Delglish is ignored and strong-armed to retire. Eventually, though, he moves to a different branch of government where he is given a do-nothing job, and he retires eventually in 2009, after five years of apparently doing nothing but reading novels in his work office. <laughs> 2004 is where reality catches up with the Crocus Fund. Part of the tax credit exchange was that investors could not pull their money out for a fixed time frame. The big bump in investments in the mid to late 90s, they reached that end of that time frame in 2003-2004, and people logically begin to move their money. Companies that rely on the fund to grow their businesses still need that money, and if there isn't the Crocus Fund, they're going to have to go outside of the province because it's the only one in Manitoba that will do this. So Crocus responds to this pressure by developing something called a super fund. No, actually, that's the literal name. It's Superfund with a capital S. Like oh, it's going to swoop course. in with Kryptonian powers of limitless capital and bail out Manitoba. I'm sure our American listeners just can't hear Superfund without thinking of Superfund sites and the toxic waste dumps. <laughs> yep, I thought of that too. 
And I'm like, this, this can't be the name, seriously. So where are they going to pull this limitless capital to bail out the province? The super fund managers want to pull it from public sector pension plans, including the one that I was contributing to at the time, <laughs> and Crown Corporation investment funds. I now work for a Crown Corporation. Crocus chief executive Sherman Craner hires two new senior managers with the belief that Crocus is going to manage Superfund and keep it all in the family. In September of 2004, these two new managers propose a write-down of Crocus's valuation. A write-down is an economic correction where a fund says, sorry, we said your shares were worth X amount. They're actually worth Y amount, where X is a number much higher than Y, so you're going to get much lower money. These managers also propose creating a new third-party management company for Crocus, which would hire all of the Crocus staff, except for the CEO. In December of 2004, trading on Crocus is halted at $10.45 per share. It had the top value of $15 per share at one point. Over 30,000 Manitobans had stakes in the fund when it was halted. Luckily, the plans for Superfund are also halted, and this is where most Manitobans begin to hear of the major issues. The Manitoba Securities Commission and the Auditor General start investigations in 2005. They won't let Crocus start trading again with the same board, so Crocus fires all of the board members and they recruit a whole new board. This new board asks that the province help by getting them more insurance to cover the board, which is always an interesting sign. I've been on boards where we've asked for more insurance and it was never going in a good place. <laughs> I got the feeling you ain't got any. Am I right or am I right? That's all I can say for legal reasons. And they also ask to ease the cash reserve requirements on the fund. So they Lauren, didn't... if you ever need me to read something on your behalf <laughs> during a segment, I'm happy to return the favor. Nope, I would burn it down myself, but thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so they've asked for the insurance and to ease the cash reserve requirements on the fund. They've asked for that from the government. The province says no, and the new board resigns entirely, and the Grocus Fund goes into receivership. A receivership is a remedy available to secured creditors to recover amounts outstanding under a secured loan when a company defaults. So these creditors get to jump the line and attempt to get their money back before any other people. Deloitte Canada is appointed as receiver for the fund, and this is in 2005. At the same time that Crocus goes into receivership, the RCMP launches a criminal investigation into what went wrong with the fund. Now, despite there being an official receivership, a group of investors also file a $200 million lawsuit in 2005. In addition to Crocus itself, the lawsuit names PricewaterhouseCoopers and the Manitoba Securities Commission both for negligence and fund advisors Wellington Wesp and fund advisors Wellington West and Nesbitt Burns for including false and misleading information in the investment materials. So you're probably thinking to yourself that that has to be wrapping up. Nope, we still have a mess to sort out and it lasts until, any guesses? Like last year. You're right. 2022. I think I heard that. I just, I recall every, let's say 12 months or so hearing Crocus coming up on the news again. Like, oh my God, what the hell is going yep. on? Yeah. It lasted until 2022. The RCMP involvement did not. That investigation wraps up quickly in 2008 with no evidence of criminal misconduct and no charges laid on anyone. Deloitte distributes over $70 million in recovered funds between 2009 and 2014. They also take local hotel company Canad Inns to court to dissolve its parent company to try and eke out some of the Crocus investments from Canad Inns. This particular lawsuit 
drags on until 2019, when CanEd's Inns was forced to buy back shares in the fund for $4 million. So they threw $4 million at Deloitte and said, please go away. Basically, if a Manitoba company made money between 1993 and 2003, Deloitte was coming for them. And some of these companies turned to allegedly less legal means to keep that money coming in. Like, allegedly, former Crocus beneficiary Maple Leaf Distillers, whose chairman David Walensky allegedly started a check-kiting scheme to keep the company afloat. Anyone need an explanation of check-kiting? I only have a vague notion. Is it like when you make a checkout for something you don't actually have, but it's like you're kind of rotating it to try and make it look like you have money? (laughs) Yep, basically. It's known as the float time, which is why they call it the kiting. So it's floating like a kite. It's the gap between where the financial institution recorded check deposits and when they cleared checks written on their line of credit accounts. So the time between when you put your money into the ATM and say, I swear it's a certain amount, and then somebody actually goes through that file. Nowadays, the ATMs have things where they'll actually scan the money and they'll see what it is, that kind of thing. You don't put it in the the envelope anymore. This is why. You can't kite checks anymore. Mm -hmm. So back to our allegations. Allegedly, between the fund's downfall in 2004 and 2006, Walensky moved about $300 million of checks between Maple Leaf Distillers, its holding company Protos International, and another Protos company. Wait for it. Laura, you're going to love this one. Salisbury House Restaurants. (laughs) For those of you not in Manitoba, Salisbury House is a mainstay of diner cuisine. Can I call it cuisine? Honestly? It's our homegrown, 24-hour, sober-up-with-cheap-grease-and-wafer-pie kind of place. But they do have the best donuts. Really? Well, after you've donated blood, they have the best donuts. <laughs> True. I don't think I've ever had a Salisbury House donut. I did not know that was a thing that existed. The, the only reason we have them all the time or had them all the time, they have they've stopped. Yet? They've no. stopped. Yeah, they stopped over the pandemic. But Laura and I are avid blood donors and Salisbury House donates i assume donates a bunch of donuts to canadian blood services so you can have a donut after your donation and they're cinnamony they're they're quite nice they're they're a cake donut but there's cinnamon in the donut so it's not just like in a cinnamon sugar and then they have a really good chocolate glaze on them and the whole thing is like it's not my favorite type of donut but it's just very satisfying i can get behind that mm-hmm. yeah anyway I, for- I had forgotten oh. about those donuts does this does this then somehow implicate Burton Cummings too? One of the partners in Walensky's business was the guess who's musical manager as well. Because okay. Winnipeg. Well, because Burton Cummings had a big stake in mm-hmm. Salisbury House at some point, so yeah, but he is not implicated in this lawsuit. Okay, Burton is still free to rename the Walker. Sigh. <laughs> Okay, check kiting. We're back to check kiting. Allegedly. Allegedly, the bonus checks deposited into each company allowed them each to appear like they had more money than they did, which allowed Walensky to allegedly increase their lines of credit and take out more money. This fraud also allegedly included the chief credit officer of Astra Credit Union. Investors sued Astra. Astra sued the former employee and the companies involved. And eventually, Astra Credit Union folded into the Assiniboine Credit Union and no longer exists to be sued. As of this recording, 
I cannot find if this case has been completed. The last articles I can find are for when it all blew up in the public, hence my liberal sprinkling of allegedlies. <laughs> I will follow up if I get an answer. The 2005 lawsuit filed by investors wraps up in 2008 for less than the investors wanted. Oh, we're back to Crocus now. We're off of the Maple Leaf Distillers. Sorry. So it's the 2005 lawsuit that was filed by private investors. That mm-hmm. wraps up in 2008 for less than the investors wanted, but between $6 and $6.50 per share. So again, at its highest, Crocus shares were $15 each. And now they're getting a payout of slightly more than a third of that. We've skipped around a bit, but finally, in September 2022, yes, only five months ago, as Laura said, the courts approve a final wind-down plan for Crocus Fund with an anticipated $5.2 million final payout. Shareholders had until September 30, 2022, to claim any restitution. Anything remaining in the fund went to the Manitoba government. So who benefited most from the payout? Any guesses? The government? No, surprisingly this time. Sam Cates. <laughs> he's in there somehow, because, oh. Always a good he, he's, he's dancing around the edge of this. He's a former Winnipeg mayor. Now, Liz, now he's Arizona's problem, so enjoy that. The biggest payee appears to be Deloitte, which they have included over $27 million in professional fees and expenses in the 15 years it was chasing the money. That's $27 million from individual Manitobans transferred to a Toronto corporation. Most of this, after 2008, was happening out of the public eye. The Crocus sign, however, stood proudly on the Crocus building at Maine and Bannatyne until 2017, when the building was purchased by McKim Communications Group. And that is the short rise and extendedly sad downfall of the last time Manitoba tried to invest in itself. (laughs) So this was supposed to be a scheme where we could build stuff and people would get a return on investing in building and stuff, and then instead, all the money went away. Yeah. Some people got their money back at like $6 per share when they would invest at like $15 per share. But it was the fund of the little people, and it was pushed by the NDP because it was labor helping build the province. Mm-hmm. People over profit, build up your province, build up your city. Seems like a good theory and terrible execution. Yep. Yeah. As usual. <laughs> God. Oh. Seriously, trust, trust a Manitoba government to just mess it up really badly. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, when I got to the part about not passing the legislation of sensible investment... I like I that's when I had to go to the to read the acts and stuff. <laughs> One of my show notes is the Manitoba legislative body bills and everything from 2003 onwards. So if you're interested, enjoy that. I spent mm-hmm. a riveting time there this evening. Oh, I will not. No thanks. <laughs> and somehow I still wrote over well about 1900 words about how bonkers this Crocus Fund was. That's great. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you for enlightening us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I'm sad. I don't oh. have any donuts. You can um, fix that. Mm, donuts. I have grown shots of yeah, and you know that's awesome. Up, up, and away, it's time for the waffle. Yeah, you waffles, we'll be having a bottle. A little bit of sugar, soak up the alcohol. 
I have been somewhat following the story of U.S. Congressperson George Santos. However, today I read so much about George Santos. <laughs> and I'm just blown away by both how incredibly audacious all of this was and how he just kept lying his way into bigger lies. But I'm also, I was just continuously noticing how I feel like I know this story from countless internet dramas. Like the pattern of he said that he had such and such qualification or such and such fun personal anecdote. And so just kept having to build on that story. Like, I know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> he is an archetype. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't realize that until I really started reading a lot of articles today. First of all, here's an upsetting fact. George Santos is 34 years old. He is, in fact, four days younger than me. (laughs) We are exactly the same age. That is too close for comfort. Gross. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) Yeah. He was born to parents of Brazilian heritage who were living in the States at the time. This is one of the only facts that we can for sure (laughs) substantiate. We're pretty sure that this is true. And in fact, is one of the only things that, if untrue, would leave him unable to have his Congress seat. But does he know the Pope? As far as I'm aware, (laughs) he has not yet claimed to know the Pope. I would not be shocked if it comes out that he at one point claimed to know the Pope. (laughs) Checking. Thank you. Okay. When he was running for Congress not too long ago, it has been asked, how did this not come out? How did nobody figure out that everything he has said about himself is a lie? Like, I'm, I'm not starting with the let's talk about his life story and then talk about how he's a con man. The whole story is that he's a con man. <laughs> After being elected to the Republican seat in New York, New York District 3, All of this stuff pretty much immediately came out. Because somebody read his resume. (laughs) (laughs) In a nod to local journalism, the only people who seemed to have called his bullshit before he was actually elected and it was too late was a small local newspaper called The Leader. I would like to read a few excerpts from The Leader because it is perhaps some of the most vicious journalism I've ever read. It was very entertaining for me. Let me try and find that tab. Okay. This is where they are officially endorsing his opposition, Robert Zimmerman, the Democrat for U.S. Congress. This newspaper would like to endorse a Republican for U.S. Congress in New York 3, but the GOP nominee, George Santos, is so bizarre, unprincipled, and sketchy that we cannot. We endorse (laughs) Democrat Robert Zimmerman. (laughs) (laughs) Santos calls himself a contradiction, a gay Latino who is ultra mega and who vacations with his new husband at Trump's Mar-a-Lago, praising Trump as awesome. But he then supports extreme leftist schemes like black reparations from white people. Santos has been all over the map on abortion and on Ukraine. He brags about his wealth and his mansions in the Hamptons, but he really lives in a row house in Queens. 
He boasts like an insecure child, but he's most likely just a fabulist. A fake. <laughs> like, they called it. They 100% called it before the election. Support local journalism. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was quite impressed at this one paper that figured it out in advance. I do enjoy this line. Santos himself claims to have loaned his campaign nearly $600,000, but he refuses illegally to file his federal financial disclosures. The last one he filed in 2020, by the way, that was when he failed a Congress bid the first time, shows that Santos had no assets over $5,000. So where did $600,000 come from, or is it even real? Fed up Republicans are now calling him George Scamtos. Yeah. Nobody paid attention. He was elected in a bit of an upset. There was even... So towards the end of the campaign, both candidates seemed to realize that this was going to be really close and that it could decide the majority in the House. The Republicans in the area, like the committee, poured a bazillion dollars into the candidates in the districts right around his and the democrats poured a bunch of money into this race and the theory now is that the republicans had figured out that he was kind of sketchy and didn't want to dump a money bunch of money into electing a scam <laughs> artist because it made no sense otherwise to fund these other campaigns and not this one but they were just right. like you know what if this guy loses that's maybe okay <laughs> but, but they didn't go as far as to pull his mandate no no of course not so that's a little background in the lead up to him getting elected. It was quite an interesting race because it was played as the first time two openly gay candidates were fighting it out for a Congress seat. Yeah, that's an interesting story, but it's also interesting to go back and read all of these stories that were published before the thing, and they all mention his husband. And... That's just a lie. He does, as far as we can tell, does not have a husband, does not even have a serious boyfriend as far as anyone can figure out, and doesn't even try to perpetuate this lie anymore. Like he campaigned the whole time as if he had a husband that just didn't show up and then showed up to the house without a wedding ring. Like just whatever. He forgot about it. It wasn't important or he clearly, I don't know. I would oh I would think that going into the campaign, you'd think, well, I'm not going to be able to pretend I have a husband this whole time. But maybe that was the limit of like, I guess I can't pretend anymore once I get into. <laughs> Does he just like think he could put on a blonde wig and then just show up to the spouse's dues or something? Who is he? Who is he? Where's your little chippy? Sorry, I was just going to say, like, you're expected to have a spouse on your arm. If you have a spouse, you're expected to have that person with you. So, like, shouldn't it have been a big red flag where he's like, I have a husband that no one's ever seen. Especially (laughs) on the campaign trail. Exactly. Those are supposed to be your biggest supporters. Exactly. Like, spouses are a big thing. They're always standing behind you, smiling, like, mm -hmm. oof. Okay. Well, some of them are smiling. Well, I mean, fake smile or real smile, they're, they're standing there. <laughs> so Twist, he had gotten divorced a few weeks before his 2020 failed run for Congress. But at the time, he was married to a woman. And during that marriage to a woman, he was also, 
he announced an engagement to his boyfriend at the time. His boyfriend at the time said that George Santos had proposed several times, none of which he accepted. (laughs) And (laughs) that at one point he was living with George and his then wife, and he thought they were just friends. Oh, no. Just absolutely wild. I swear I dated this guy. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. They were living together. The boyfriend was 18. Santos was 26. So already like a little icky. And then this whole like, oh, yeah, this is my friend that I live with and we all go partying sometimes. Okay, wait, I'm not. I just want to clarify. So the the boyfriend, did he consider himself George Santos's boyfriend at all? Yes. Just that they never got engaged. Okay, okay. I just wanted to... Because the boyfriend understood early on that Santos was a serial liar and could not be trusted. Right. So good for him. Yeah, so okay, I'm 18. I've got a place to stay. It's fine. I'll be fine at the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. I got a a free row house in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, okay. (laughs) Chewing gum helped me think. Sweetie, you're wasting your gum. Oh, Anywho, Lord. we're jumping around the timeline because it's just more fun that way, honestly, to like reveal the layers. This is almost like the iceberg <laughs> episode. Yeah. <laughs> but I did find an excellent article that I do want to recommend. If you go and read any of my show note links, there's a great one called Here's Every Single Lie Told by George Santos. <laughs> <laughs> Real convenient article. You get to choose between something fun like that or Manitoba legislative bills and assemblies. So your choice, listeners. So starting from the beginning, he lied about where he went to high school. He lied about where he went to college. There is no evidence that he ever attended the fancy pants high school that he said he attended until almost graduation. But then his parents couldn't quite afford him. So he like afford the last year. So he left and eventually got a high school equivalency diploma. But most of his education was at this fancy pants school. Again, no evidence he ever attended there. Not even that like he went for a little bit. Never. (laughs) That just blows my mind. Okay. Next, he claims that he graduated with a degree in economics and finance from Baruch College. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce this. And he says that he graduated in 2010, which suggests that he would have made it through a four-year program in two years, if he actually graduated in 2008 from this fancy pants school. However, there's no record of him being in the class of 2010. There is no record of him playing sports at the school, never mind being the star volleyball player, which he claims to be. Like, there's going to be news articles about that if you're a star volleyball player, even in a rinky-dink little school, which I have no idea if this is, but apparently it's somewhat prestigious. he he had to choose the gay team sport, volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he hasn't been shy about at least being open about being gay. So there's that. There's other things that he has been not open about, which are very funny, which we're getting to. I mean, I assume he's some he's some flavor of queer. I won't claim him as family, but if he also had a wife, it, I'm going to assume at least some intimacy there. But that, let's not know, know true Scotsman, this guy. I'm no, I said some flavor of queer. I know. So after his education, he lied about pretty much everywhere he worked, as far as we can tell. So that's fun. 
He claims to have worked at fancy financial places like Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. Both places said that they had no record of his involvement. He even did a really bad job about like picking times and things that he worked on. For example, he claimed to work for Citigroup's real estate branch in the mid-2010s, but the bank got rid of that part of their business while he was still in high school. (laughs) So, like, he didn't do the bare minimum research to make this look plausible. Oh, boy. Very annoying. Somebody got a hold of his resume, which is just a bunch of inflated, like, doubled the revenue on this thing, and I am the best ever. Extremely egotistical. Very fun. He worked for a bunch of, worked for quote unquote places where it seems like he was in charge of scamming people. For example, a place called Harbor City Capital, where right after he left, they were taken down and accused of being a classic Ponzi scheme. The company is currently. In mediation, and he was never, like, charged as part of it, but he was there taking people's money. Oof. There was a fun scam where he claimed to investors that there was a complete coverage for whatever they were going to pay, and he used a document signed by supposedly Deutsche Bank. And then this guy, who was obviously more savvy than Santos expected, came back and was like, "The I so I checked with Deutsche Bank, and they say this is bullshit. Would you like to respond?" And George was like, "Hmm, I don't understand what you're talking about. Please." And it was just the total oh, like this this can't be right. My everything about this is totally legitimate, and this must be a misunderstanding. Just the classic dissembling of a carn artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was his whole deal up until he started running for politics. He would do small time sort of scammy things on the side and claim to be a journalist or claim to be whatever. And he has a string of fun evictions in his past, even though he was very vocal during the COVID-19 eviction moratorium on saying how that was destroying landlords. (laughs) Poor guy. All right. There was some fun animal charity stuff in his past, like mm. just the classic villain moves of, of a terrible person. He has claimed that he ran a foundation called Friends of Pets United. His claim is that the organization ran between 2013 and 2018 and saved 2,500 cats and dogs. When it was looked into, there are no social media accounts for the organization. There are no tax records. There's no evidence of the charity being registered in either state that Santos claimed to have operated it in. There was perhaps one fundraiser in 2017 for which Santos charged a $50 entry. The group that threw the event said that it never received any funds and Santos made up several excuses for why he didn't have the money. Oh, no. Right? And he only threw one event and he didn't give them the money. (laughs) Okay, that's not even the worst story about him fucking over pets. There was a disabled veteran that came to him for help to fund a life-saving surgery for his dog, who was like, the only reason I make it through in the morning. 
And this guy is living in a tent in New Jersey. His pit bull needed a surgery that was like three grand. And George Santos, a.k.a. Anthony DeVolder, a few of his other names, set up a GoFundMe that got the money for the surgery. Santos then refused to turn over the money. Oh, my God. Yep. And the dog passed away because it didn't have the surgery that it needed. And Santos said that this is a quote unquote insane story. Okay, but Uh, we have all of the records and it seems to be you. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like when when one person says a story like that about you. Okay, well, let's let's look into it more. When everybody tells the same story about you. You, like you say, Ashlyn, you're the one at the center of all of this. Oh, this dude lives in the Google era. Yeah. Yeah. And he's grown up exactly the same as me. He knows that all of this can be Googled easily. Yeah. You can't just get in your wagon and go to the next town. (laughs) He should also know about timelines and genealogy, which is something he does not know about. Because he has made many claims about his past and his ancestors, which have turned out to be incorrect. Like, this is not the 1800s where you can say whatever you feel like about your great-granddaddy and no one can tell you differently. There are searches for this. So first of all, his grandmother was definitely not a Holocaust victim. Because of course she wasn't. (laughs) There was an interview that Santos gave in May of 2022 where he said his grandparents survived the Holocaust and his official campaign bio claimed that they fled persecution during World War II. In fact, his parents were both born in Brazil. His maternal grandparents were born in Brazil. His maternal great-grandparents, three out of four of them were born in Brazil. The last one immigrated from Belgium in like 1850. So that simply did not happen. Nope. Not a chance. Next, his mom did not die in 9-11, nor probably because of (laughs) (laughs) 9-11. Although that's somewhat less clear. No, actually, it's 100% clear. What am I talking about? First, okay, I've read way too many articles. December, unclear whether she was at all involved in 9-11. By now, totally not involved. (laughs) Okay. Santos claimed on Twitter that the September 11 attacks claimed his mother's life. That's like, you mean something in particular by that, okay? Uh Uh-huh. So then he clarified and said, no, no. She was there on September 11th, and then the debris cloud led to her cancer, which claimed her life. But we never claimed any of the benefits or anything because we had enough money. We didn't need it. Okay. Is she still alive? No. Okay. <laughs> Checking that would how be far funny, this goes. Though. Okay. So, uh, yeah, 15 years after 9 11, passing away from cancer caused by 9 11. Okay. That's a stretch. That De- definitely didn't happen. In. 2003, his mom applied for a visa to re-enter the U.S., and in that visa, she wrote that she had not been in the country since 1999. So, by her own admission, she Could was not, not in the have. country. Yeah. So, it was 99-11. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he also claimed that she was doing something, I don't remember, 
in the tower like she was an office worker of some kind whereas we only have records of her being things like domestic worker or cook or nanny things like that like there's no reason that she would be sitting in an office typing or whatever which is what he claimed apparently she spoke no english just just wild layers of story that he's built up on top of one another (sighs) okay oh here's a good one he did not have any connection to the pulse shooting despite his claims at one point he claimed to have four employees who died in the shooting none of the 49 victims at the orlando club worked at any of the companies he has named in any of his biographies so he just he just didn't even make any of this up properly no effort at world building here (laughs) yeah no because he's compulsive about it yeah and and it's very i I mean i don't want to say very clearly but there isn't a greater con with this he just has to be part of whatever it is he wants fame and power and it's funny because that's like the refrain from people who've known him his whole life too they know it yeah they see this and they're like oh there goes george again (laughs) they recognized it yeah they know him as george well, I was going to say, or what was it, Andrew or something? So he, he, as is typical with a lot of Latin American names, he has his George Anthony, mom's last name, Santos, Devardo. Right. So yeah, and he has used all kinds of combinations of those four names in his various schemes over the years. Yeah. I mean, a fluidity of names, I, I'll give him that for if they are all on his birth certificate. Sure, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I'm giving him one. <laughs> okay. I want to continue down the list because it's it's extensive. Okay. There was the whole my grandparents fled the Holocaust thing. So he's claimed to be Jewish multiple times. Now he's claiming, no, no, I never said I was Jewish. I said I was Jew-ish. Jew-ish. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Because of this maternal heritage. Like, no, no, I wasn't raised Jewish. I'm just Jewish. (laughs) Oh, my God. That it's somehow worse because like, what does what does like that's like saying I'm Jewy. Like, what does that mean to you? Not good. What cultural connotations are you drawing from here? Friends have mentioned repeatedly that he used to think that it was funny to make anti-Semitic or racist jokes and say, well, it's okay, I'm biracial or it's okay, I'm Jewish, I can say these things. And like, it's finally happened. The time of millennials, ridiculous Facebook comments from 15 years ago is coming back to haunt them. (laughs) he made a truly ridiculous hi hitler lololol joke like totally like 15 year old in the 2010s ridiculous joke on facebook and it came back to bite him because of course it did everything you've written on the internet is still there somewhere very entertaining given the Republicans' current vendetta against drag queens. He was apparently a drag queen with high ambitions in Brazil, something which, when it came to light recently, he denied vehemently for like two days. And then when it became impossible to deny anymore, he was like, never mind. Like, I was young and I was having fun at a festival. Never like, leave me alone. (laughs) Leaving you? 
My stereo? No. My red boots? I don't want. And my wigs? Wish we. And I mean, <sighs> you, you gotta be good in Brazil. Right, right. And he They're apparently had aspirations class. to be Miss Gay Drag Rio de Janeiro, which that's a big title. Yeah. You are all creative, fun wordplay nerds. What should George Santos's drag name be? Oh, don't put me on the spot like this. I guarantee you anything you come up with will be better than what he did. No, Agador. Victoria Page will not dance the dance of the red shoes tonight. I'm not good at this kind of thing. (laughs) This is mostly for Lauren. I just felt like they could come up with something good. I'm not going to come up with the ones that made me think of what he was saying about the Holocaust. So I'm mm. just going to leave those. It's just really boring. Kitara Ravash. Like. Okay, boring. great. Lovely. Yeah. Next. To, to Lovely quote Tatiana, next. choices. Right. <laughs> this drag career is funnier in light of the brief sparring match that he had on Twitter with drag queen Trixie Mattel. <laughs> oh bless her <laughs> so George Santos was whining about late night comedians being bad at impersonating him and then Trixie Mattel drag queen replies to him saying maybe the source material was weak and Santos claps back with clearly you know all about weak acting skills Trixie and put a gif of Trixie impersonating RuPaul on All Stars in which she famously did very badly (laughs) and was nearly eliminated. And remember what I said earlier, Mattel replied to that with, I am not an actor. I was young and I had fun at a festival. (laughs) See, okay, I had read that that exchange but i didn't know the the context of that so it's it's much better (laughs) yeah just like the the hypocrisy the total and this is the analysis of of quite a few people that i've i've read today but he's clearly just reveling in the attention it doesn't matter that everyone knows that he's a fraud he still gets to have the cool job and the cool title and boss people around and be mysterious and jerk the press around which is something he seems to be very much enjoying he has like done things like promise them treats for surprises in the morning or whatever and then he like bring a box of donuts or whatever and acting all fake nice while taunting them stuff like that it's just it's very clear in the descriptions of the things that he's doing he also gets on. lifetime medical Paid, Medicare paid for in the United States to a degree mm. that hardly anybody in the country will get. And he also gets a lifetime pension. So no matter what happens, because he held this seat, he gets to grift off the American public for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Is he Sorry to downplay. enough to know that he does or he's expected to do work in this job? I, None I'm, of the other of them do. Well... Yeah, I don't know. It just feels like he's so wrapped up in, like you say, Ashlyn, the the fame of it and the getting to it that he failed to think. I I don't get the sense that he thought through the fact that he might be expected to do things Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I feel like thinking like Lauren, I feel like him being like, oh, I'll be set for the lifetime after this. I don't I think that's too much credit for this guy Mm -hmm. because he has not shown anything 
anywhere near that level of cleverness for anything else that he has brought up so far. It doesn't have to be his idea. I mean, with the healthcare crisis in that country, not to say the one in our own only also, but the healthcare con- and the pay crisis and people talk, I mean, he seems to be like he is able to develop these whatever is around him. And people talking about things like this and the unfairness, you're going to say, yeah, these people have X, Y, and Z. And he's like, I could get X, Y, and Z. It doesn't have to be his idea. Somebody just has to put it in there. He'll tell you it was his idea. Hmm. He's, oh, what's that movie where... The Talented um, Mr. Ripley? Nope. Nope. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, I'm going to describe it so badly. <laughs> Kevin Spacey describes stuff in an office and makes... Yeah, usual suspects. That's the one. <laughs> it's like that, except like less creative. I, I do have a quote to offer you for the question, does he realize he's going to have to do any work here? Okay. This is in response to reporters hassling him about questions about ethics and things like that over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Quote, you haven't seen a single answer come out of the repeated questions over and over and over again because this is not how you conduct interviews. You schedule with our comms teams. We sit down and we give you answers, he assures us, his voice lilting, sounding like a teacher addressing a class of unruly kindergartners. And oh, I can just feel it. And it says, ah, if only it were that easy. His office declined repeated requests for an interview. (laughs) (laughs) So no, he's just prepared to tell everybody else how to do their jobs, but not to do his own. Yeah, exactly. And somehow coast through the next four years. Yeah. Well, two? He seems confident that he's going to stick around for two years. Okay. I feel like it's four. I don't know why he feels confident about two. Why, so what, why wouldn't he stick around for a full term? I don't know. Is it weird? Are there like these weird little half terms for representatives? Uh, I believe that the terms are offset. They are. Yeah, offset. I know they're offset. Um, there's always a junior and a senior. Think- unless it was unless someone resigned and this was a by-election. Yeah, that's that's possible. I'm not sure. Americans chime in. Tell us. Or don't. It's fine. This this guy's a piece of work, this one. He's I'm sorry for the people who live in his district. Right. Apologies, we're still not done getting through the list of lies. Was he really a journalist in Brazil? Probably not. According to roommates, he mostly just sat around and surfed the web and chatted with people when he was claiming to be a journalist. Which, fair, that is a lot of what journalism is. But he probably wasn't a journalist during this time. There's no, there's no financial information. <laughs> and point me to some bylines there, George. Right. He claimed on a podcast in December. So this was a month after he was elected. And he was on a Brazilian podcast. So he, I guess, thought nobody would listen who knew facts from the States. But he was like, oh, yeah, they've already had an assassination attempt. And, and also I was mugged on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight. They took my shoes, my briefcase, and my watch. Like, this just didn't happen. Podcasts, famously hyperlocal. So apparently MSNBC translated the interview, aired it, and then contacted the office for police records and didn't receive a response. Also, like, did this mugging happen in 1920? Like... <laughs> right. It's just whatever comes to his brain. It just comes out of his face that makes him, th- that he oh think God. makes him sound impressive. 
Sweetie, you're wasting your gun. Oh my god. Yeah. He's currently being investigated by the Nassau County District Attorney, the New York State Attorney General's Office, the Eastern District of New York, as well as Brazilian law officials in Rio de Janeiro for an old check scheme that he probably moved back to the States in 2011 to get away from because he admitted to it and then just left the country. So now they've reopened it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, goodness. Yeah, fun times. Apparently he could be tried in absentia. That's fun. He cannot be removed from his seat by any sort of currently available means unless he is charged with some kind of crime, which seems likely at this point based on how many lies he must have told in his like FEC filings. So the financial <laughs> disclosures that you have to, oh, I didn't even get into. He well, we'll save it for part two. It's fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> he he resubmitted all of his financial claims, all of his financial stuff and put the name of it like the my treasurer is such and such famous guy who is in charge of campaign finance for a lot of guys. And this guy was like, I am not. Please do not say that. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea oh Bocelli. <laughs> yeah, like just you can't tell people that he's your treasurer if he's ne- like, how did you get his signature? He doesn't know who you are. It's oh wild. And he cannot be removed from his seat unless he gets charged with some kind of crime. Like just all of these lies mean nothing. Yep. He has still has the support of a statistical error of 7% of his district, apparently. 83% of them, or 93% of them want him gone. Yeah. Record numbers. George Santos, I'm sure I left out an incredible number of things. Those are some highlights. I love this story. Today, he gave up all of his committee appointments, which is maybe an indication that he knows he's in big shit. I'm sure that the story will have developed further by the time we release this. I can't wait. I, again, feel like I know this guy from various internet dramas of people who have just built their levels of lies so high that they can't get out from under them. So they feel like they should just keep building them higher because why not? (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm... I'm looking forward to the recap on next month's episode to see where is he now. <laughs> it's going to be good. Yeah. This it's it's really interesting to see this unfolding in as close to real time as possible. Like usually we hear about these things after the fact or there's a delay in finding out information, but just like we've been saying like in in the age of the internet it just comes out immediately. He opens his mouth and someone can fact check it. And it's just like, it's a very interesting thing to see. So yes, I also look forward to seeing uh, where he is next. I would like to leave you with a quote from Mr. Santos's drag friend who knew him back in Brazil. He wasn't a bad person, Mr. Shard asked, added of Mr. Santos when he lived in Brazil. He was a regular gay teenager in a country where there were no laws protecting gay people. And then he moved to the States. Sigh. I am also looking forward to seeing the update on this. Um, I have to do Santos watch. (laughs) Oh, no. If I can find it, I will send it to Marissa. There was even, again, like millennials on the internet in this day and age. 
they found his Smule account where he has just uploaded a bunch of like him doing karaoke. And <laughs> the the Rolling Stones article honestly was very cute. It was basically like, we understand that karaoke is a safe space. And so we will not be making fun of Mr. Santos's karaoke because that is not what karaoke is about. <laughs> <laughs> There is plenty to make fun of here without making fun of the karaoke. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> you know what goes really well with karaoke, Laura? <laughs> what, Ashlyn? Wine. Ooh. That's true story. And do I have a story about wine for you? I'm excited. Okay. I checked our archives because I'm certain I have talked about this to some degree in the past, but I'm going to talk about it more so. At the moment, I also I'm feel like you have told us some things about how wine is a scam before. Yeah. And I think Jem has talked about it. I feel like we talked about it off the cuff more so or in, in yeah. general terms as opposed to actually um, it doing. I don't think we actually did a segment on it. Excellent. Is this those those wine scammers who are doing the the fake. OK, I thought I thought that we had talked about this. Well, we didn't talk about it on a main subject. So Jem has heard me talk about this numerous times. I've. Like I said, I'm pretty sure I've at least alluded to it on here. I want to tell you about the saga of Rudy Kurniawan. Has anybody heard that name before? Nope. I have. Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure Jem didn't hear it from the circles that Rudy ran in. But Rudy was, for a time, one of the biggest names in the ultra-rich elite wine circles. So... Rare wine trading is big business, right? There are bottles that go for hundreds of thousands of dollars at times. And it's generally a hobby of the ultra rich because, I mean, who has that kind of money, right? If I'm looking at a bottle that's more than $15, that's like, oh, I don't know. Am I a big spender tonight? So is it the anniversary? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So in the early 2000s, there was a new player that emerged in this rare wine scene. And this was Rudy Kurniawan. He's a 20-something immigrant from Indonesia who was at the time based in Southern California. And he took an interest in rare and expensive wines. Rudy was said to have been from a wealthy Indonesian family, and he used his family money to amass a hoard of expensive wines. By some accounts, he was spending half a million dollars a year on wine, and he was frequently outbidding everyone at wine auctions. Uh, by some accounts, when he would go to wine auctions, he would just raise his paddle and leave it raised until everyone else stopped bidding and would just buy the wine there. Wow. That's one strategy. <laughs> so Rudy started collecting wine in 2001, and... He specialized in rare Burgundy wines, which at the time were less well known in the United States. So Burgundy is uh, a region of France and there's particular types of wine that come from there. And while these were not unknown, they were just not as popular among American circles at the time. By 2003, 
Rudy had gained international notoriety on the wine scene for his wine knowledge and for his large wine collection. So within a couple of years, he had become a major player on the scene. He became he quickly became known as this up and comer with great ideas and an amazing palate. And he was really widely accepted into these these elite wine collecting circles and was and joined some elite groups within this. He was known to have large tasting parties where he would invite all of his friends and he would open many bottles, you know, the equivalent of 10 to 20,000, if not more dollars of tasting with his friends and just give it away for free. So all of these old and expensive wines that from the Burgundy region. And so he became really known for this and people liked hanging around with him. And he became friends with, like I'd mentioned, he he really enmeshed himself into the elite wine circles and, and ultra rich wine community, especially in New York City. He became friends with a high end wine retailer who helped facilitate some of these introductions for him. So it really helped gain his notoriety. Rudy was loved by many people, including the mainstream media who would give him a little bit of attention and talk about how much he was spending on wine and how he's this young guy who has all of this wine knowledge. And he would often go by the name Dr. Conti after his favorite wine, which is Domaine de la Romanie Conti. So he even had a nickname in the first few years and people really, really liked that and him. It sounds very rude. <laughs> it does. Now, the people that he became friends with, while they were big into expensive wine, they also had a bit of a reputation about them. One of these groups was called 12 Angry Men. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. It's not the movie or the the plays or books or anything related to that. It was a group of wine lovers who would go to very expensive New York restaurants and bring very expensive bottles of wine and drink a lot together and enjoy how expensive everything was. You know, if you ever want to get serious about wine, you really have to lose the mustache. It's true, because it gets all caught up in there. Now, as much as they enjoyed this and owned a lot of wine and drank a lot of wine, their reputation for actually being connoisseurs was a little less than stellar. Many, many of their critics would say that they actually had little experience in tasting many of these high-end wines or, or having much of a palate for it. So there's a subtext to a lot of the, the source material that I read that these people liked the prestige of the wine. And I mean, hey, they like getting hammered, but they, they're not really true wine people. And they, they're more about the look of everything. And because of this... At the time, while a lot of people really, really loved Rudy and thought that he was this amazing new up-and-comer, like I said, there was a couple of red flags that came up for longtime wine collectors who tended to steer clear of him. Now, Rudy had a really interesting habit that he would keep all of the bottles from the wine that he would drink at all of these tasting events that he would host, which is not usual. Most of the time, people would leave the bottles. That's trash. But he wanted to keep them all. And, and being young and new and, and different, a lot of people thought it became part of his eccentric flair and, and just part of who he was and what he did. 
That is bonkers. I used to know people who would keep the corks and write yeah. the the date that they ate it, that they drank the wine, and yeah. to whom. And like their collection turned into buckets and buckets and buckets. How do you keep bottles? Like, well, no, that that would be a lot. And and considering the amount of bottles he would have at some of these events, it was a huge number of bottles. So, Rudy. Again, he started his collection in about 2001. By 2003, he was really on the scene. And by 2006, he decided to begin auctioning off part of his collection. He had grown his collection sufficiently and he had enough prestige. So he started getting into the wine selling business. Now, Burgundy wines were selling at all-time high prices, probably partly due to his purchasing and overbidding for them. So in 2006, he had his first two large sales where he sold part of his wine collection. And the latter of the two sales set a record for highest wine sales in a single auction. And I believe that record still has not been broken. So Kurniawan or Rudy became fam- fabulously wealthy from this and his fame in wine circles continued to grow. Now, for all the love that he was receiving and the press attention, He had a fair number of critics who continued to watch his moves carefully. And so the downfall begins. Now, one of the curious things that many people remarked on with Rudy and his wine collection was the vast amount of wine that this newcomer was able to collect in only a couple of years. But more importantly, it was the amount of particular wines that he claimed to have and then put up for sale. For example... He claimed to have two full cases of his favorite 1945 Romani Conti, which would be incredible considering that there were only 50 cases produced that year. And this is now 60 years later. Yeah, Burgundy had other stuff going on then. (laughs) A wine connoisseur named John Tilson, who writes a blog on this topic, wrote an entry on this subject from 2012 that remarked that in his own 30 years of wine collecting experience, he, neither he nor his friends had encountered anywhere near that number of, of bottles of that wine at once, let alone in one collection. Then at auctions in 2007, others in the wine world started to note wines with impossible production dates being sold. An, a very... Well-known example is in 2008, Wan was auctioning off bottles of Clos Saint-Denis wine dated 1959 and 1945. Now, the owner of the vineyard that produced that wine attended this auction in person because he had been alerted that these bottles were, were being sold. And he wanted to alert the auction house that these were fake because, in his own words, production on that wine did not start until the 1980s. So in this case, the vintner was able to stop the sale with that. Oh, so no, we have but like again, dated... just the bad research. Right. And after that, there were more auctions that were happening and more lots containing Cornea Wan's wines were held or canceled due to date irregularities and, and significant date irregularities. In 2008, lawsuits were filed by both the aforementioned vintner and a private collector alleging counterfeiting of wine. So this private collector is Bill Koch, who is a brother of the infamous Koch brothers. And he described he's a self-described billionaire and collector and pseudo cowboy. And anyway, he loves wine. And he had spent a huge, it's okay. 
it, it, truly, 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 I feel yes. <laughs> So he had spent a, a huge amount of his share of, of his family's wealth on a wine collection totaling more than 40,000 bottles in a 45,000 square foot wine cellar in his basement. After he had his entire wine collection authenticated, he realized that several of his high-priced bottles that he had purchased from Kurniawan were fakes. And so he filed a lawsuit and hired a private investigator to look into Kurniawan's past. In 2010, the FBI began uh, investigating him after revelations that came out during the private investigation. And in 2012, Kurnia Wan's house was raided by the FBI, and it was uncovered that his house was a wine counterfeiting operation. He had hundreds of old wine bottles. There's the bottles. Some empty, some full in his house. He had fake printed labels with different degrees of false aging on them. He had stamps with the names of different famous brands to print said labels on. He had recipes and formulas for replicating the flavor profiles of the different vintage wines in his house, where he was taking newer wines, cheap wines, and mixing them and blending them to get the same flavor profile. He had, he had corks that matched the types of corks, and he had wax sealers and everything to reseal these bottles. But I mean, he, like, he was working for it. He's no Santos. <laughs> he's putting in the effort. Like, he, he, is, he is putting in the effort. And there the was the date thing. That date thing is bad. Right. It, it was bad. But in terms of artificially aging things and, and all of that, that is... Uh, he was trying. And, and so they estimate there are more than 10,000 bottles out there that he counterfeited and sold and made hundreds of thousands of dollars off of with this. He was officially arrested and went to trial in 2012, where he was convicted on counts of fraud by the jury and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So where I learned about this guy was in the 2016 documentary Sour Grapes on Netflix. I was on maternity leave and eating up everything Netflix had to offer me. And I got on a wine documentary kick and uh, I was just fascinated by by this level of sophistication and much like a lot of the other people, how everyone around them just ate up their stories without questioning anything. And people who would disagree got pushed to the side or, or were, were seen as dissenting voices. Just really, though that part of it never got picked up. And, and in reality, when you think about it, like, where does a 24-year-old suddenly get all of this incredibly hard-to-find wine? And he's just newly discovered and somehow is a prodigy at wine tasting. It just doesn't add up. So where is Rudy today? Well, in 2021, he was released from prison and he was extradited to Indonesia because he was in the U.S. He had overstayed a, an education visa, applied for asylum and was denied and, and stayed so they could deport him to Indonesia. And at the time, according to his lawyer, he was entertaining inquiries about returning to the wine industry as a tasting consultant in Indonesia, as he apparently has an impeccable palate. Yeah. Wow. Some people will believe anything. It's, yeah. it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. And I want to add a couple of things to this. First of all, I, I want to add a, a bit of a coda that Bill Koch, or William Koch, whatever you want to call him, the rich guy who got defrauded, this is not the first time he's bought counterfeit wine. 
the reason he had his entire collection authenticated is because he wanted or he was asked to display part of it as part of a museum exhibition or something. And so they looked at all of it and they said, hmm, these bottles that you have that say that they're from 1784 from Thomas Jefferson's personal collection are fake. They say Thomas Edison, he's the man to get us into this century. And he said, (laughs) what? (laughs) So he looked. So just goes to show people can be doing this for a long time and still be duped because of the prestige of it all and what it means to own this wine from this person. Then the second point is that this is wine. Like, I feel no pain for anybody involved because all of these people have more money than they know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And it is inconsequential to everybody else's life. The fact that these rich people got defrauded, like truly, this is not a crime that hurts anybody. If anything, it hurts the vintners who vinted these things that aren't making these millions of dollars off of reselling their own damn wine. Like, so I take great pleasure in this type of crime because it is people, not that people deserve it, but people who can afford to get hurt by it, who right. are being who are being affected. Like day-to-day people are not are not at fault for this and are not going to suffer the consequences for this. And in fact, because of these scandals, the prices for for these vintage wines have dropped because people are being more cautious and they're not just throwing ridiculous amounts of money at at these old bottles. And then a last side note, one of the pieces that I was reading was talking about how it's shaken the wine in- industry, not just financially, but in terms of the, the rare wine industry, because of scams like this, people who actually want to buy rare wines don't actually know what they're looking for because all of these counterfeit wines that flooded the market, though they were made to look aged and such, they were still very crisp and pristine and clean. Whereas you would expect a bottle that is 70 years old to have some damage to it. The label should look much more crummy. And now people are saying, oh, I'm not going to pay as much for that bottle because it looks old. I expect them to look like new old, like Rudy's bottles did, which again, I think is funny. There's no mint condition wine. (laughs) Right. Like, like in what world did wine made in France during the Second World War come out completely unscathed? (laughs) Like 80 years later. (laughs) Can somebody please answer me this? So there will be more wine fraud so long as people people are willing to search the globe and pay obscene amounts of money for old wine. There will be more wine fraud. And I'm kind of here for it to see the tales. (laughs) We will drink it right up. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent segment. Yes. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. So onward now to something nice. I hear several of you already have things picked out. Yeah, I can go first, I guess. So I, <laughs> I've i been 
I was on call a few weeks ago at the hospital and I happened to have a moment and I checked my email and I not sure if I mentioned this last episode. I don't think it had happened yet, but I noticed an email from Sony saying, thank you for your purchase. And I said, huh, that's weird. I think it was in the OR when, when this email came in. What did I purchase? And it turns out that I had apparently spent 160 some dollars on a PlayStation Plus premium subscription. So Huxley had been playing some PlayStation and oh, had apparently subscribed me to the to the top tier of PlayStation Plus for one year, which I then, when I got home, looked into parental controls on the PlayStation. But I now had access, at least for the next 365 days, to a catalog of, of games. Frankly, I don't have time to play. <laughs> but the other day, I had a day off on Saturday, and Huxley was feeling a little bit under the weather, and we just snuggled in on the couch, and we played the Guardians of the Galaxy game that I think came out last year together. And it was fun and funny and required no real thinking. It was it was like watching a B plus A minus tier Marvel film, but without Chris Pratt, which is a bonus. <laughs> and it was just a really pleasant time snuggling up with her and and playing a video game that was silly and low impact. And it was just nice. It was expensive, but it was nice. <laughs> it's very cute. Sounds lovely. I mean, for what it's worth, I know that that happens all the time, and the customer service people are usually very nice about reversing the charges. <laughs> <laughs> well, too late now. Yeah, <laughs> you've uh, sailed that ship, but you had a nice day about it, so that's okay. Yeah, I, I had last year, she was doing this on my Kindle. I would wake up, maybe it was the year before, she was like four, I think. And I would I would wake up and find her like reading a book on my Kindle. And I'm like, I didn't know I had that book. And she said, I bought you a book, Daddy. <laughs> oh, no. Aww. So I got I, I, I think I got two sets of those purchases refunded before Amazon was like, we're not going to do this anymore. And I'm like, OK, teach me about parental controls. <laughs> yeah, they get they get so smart about it. So young, I say, as someone who doesn't have a child. <laughs> <laughs> I can go next. I have to be very circumspect about this because both for privacy reasons and also because if it doesn't happen, I want plausible deniability. <laughs> I did something career-wise the other day that I'd been hemming and hawing over for a very long time, and I feel good about it. Something may come of this, something may not, and honestly, either way is fine. I would prefer something did come of it. Sorry for being so vague booky about this, but I put myself into a situation where I had to be proud of things that I set of myself. And that is a very large step for me. And I can do it with my career if I can't do it with my personal life. So... I just want to acknowledge that as my something nice. Great. I'm proud of you. That's a very nice something nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the vaguest something nice we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can go next. 
My something nice is that I started a new part-time job replacing the full-time job. I am not working part-time in addition to full-time. Just, and going to school. Just to be clear, and going to school and family and all of those things. No. Um, so I'm excited to have more flexibility, still getting used to that and figuring out what that is exactly going to look like. But yeah, I, I like it so far. It's very, very, very different from what I've been doing recently. So there's a lot of learning and a lot of thinking changes, but I'm looking forward to it. And I'm really looking forward to, yeah, again, having flexibility in life. Awesome. And hey. most days, Laura and I now work in the same hospital, which is cool. Oh, nice. But of course, mm-hmm. not not the same shift. So carpooling is still out of the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be too easy. Yeah, we don't roll like that. As soon as we get comfortable, one of us just has to jet off in a different direction. <laughs> Aww. Ooh, but maybe you can like graze anatomy this shit. I don't know. I've never seen an episode. I just hear the <laughs> everywhere in the hospital. No, we're good. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Hospitals yeah. are gross, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was not a serious suggestion. Yucky. This was just to get a giggle. Also, there's like patients everywhere. So <laughs> there is mm-hmm. no such thing as privacy. It's Manitoba. They don't have any privacy. <laughs> my something nice is that all of my seeds for my 2023 garden have shown up and it was so magical and so weird to like feel this box that probably weighs less than a pound and be like, this represents so much potential food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Love it. Looking forward to, I'm going to like start everything early, going to do our own tomato seedlings and everything, onions. So right now I'm just stopping myself from getting started way too early. (laughs) That's the battle right now. You should give a shout out to your amazing garden planner software. Yeah, I feel like I maybe talked about this last time. No, you hadn't got it by the time we recorded last time. Oh, okay. I found this planning software on farmersalmanac.com of all places. Oh. Right? I was shocked nice. that I looked into so many different ones and this was by far the best. It shows you can like click and drag rows of plants and it'll space them appropriately. You can put down like paths in your garden and containers and if you put covers over things in this planner, it will account for that in its like calculations and then it will tell you Based on your nearest climate station, which is like 100 feet from my garden because it's at the Mm. Winnipeg airport, (laughs) how much you should be watering every individual thing and like when's the best date to transplant things. Yeah. Plus, I bet it'll tell you your horoscope and (laughs) we don't have a 10 year weather forecast. Yeah. What is this, like 10 bucks a year for this beautiful software? Oh, no, I think it was like. 40 for a year but okay my bad for it to remind me when i need to go water things based on how much it's actually rained like i don't know that is pretty cool yeah ashlyn i believe that you owe we had a a listener request that came in oh yeah i forgot about that so people were apparently upset that i mentioned that i was very happy with my current peanut butter and chocolate chip cookie recipes. They are not one recipe. They are two separate recipes. I I was both very happy with the chocolate chip recipe I made and the peanut butter cookie recipe I made. 
it's also not hard to add chocolate chips to a for peanut sure, butter cookie. For sure, for sure. So the reason that I didn't feel like I should share them is because I feel like I have very particular desires in a cookie that are probably not shared by the majority of our listeners. For example, I really like flat, chewy, crispy chocolate chip cookies. And this is, in my experience, not what everyone is into. And then the peanut butter cookies I found were just like so perfectly melt in your mouth and like that dissolving texture when you mm-hmm. bite into one and they're just like, mm. Anyway, both of them are from Sally's Baking Addiction, my very favorite baking blog. The crispy ones are in her book. And I rotated them halfway through and smacked them on the thing because the smacking makes them flatter and more cooked, (laughs) which is delicious. And the peanut butter ones can be found on her website. The soft peanut butter cookies. I recommend them. Nice. Well, we'll we'll link to those in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you for joining me today, everybody. Thank you, Ashlyn. Thank you. We officially don't know what we're talking about next month, and we're not going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) The I figured it out the thin. week before, the way we figured it out. <laughs> I listened to la- to last month's episode today, and I'm like, I'm listening to the end, going, I don't know, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. It felt like we were like going to dinner or something, and been married for <laughs> ten years. Yeah, that, that is one of my one of my favorite. Like, I'm I'm a man approaching middle aged who's been happily married for a long time. I I have to have some things to say about marriage. And the, the the favorite thing I've ever heard, the fa- my favorite description about marriage is it is two people asking each other what they want to have for dinner until they die. Yeah, yep. for the rest of their lives. Accurate. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And I've had three spouses. <laughs> this is the constant. <laughs> yeah. All yeah, right. I well, on sh- that. I should say two or more people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on, that, that's, on that note, I guess we'll say good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Night. Show notes and references for all of our episodes are available at lueepodcast.com, where you can also find links to donate or get in touch. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us, or by sharing this episode with a friend. <laughs>